Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Bienvenidos, señores y señores, to another episode of the Bleed Lows Podcast. This episode of the Bleed Lows Podcast is brought to you by Ben Online. Ben Online remains your number one source for all your college basketball betting this season. Get analysis of every play, prop, and point at Ben Online. You'll find the latest odds, bracket contests, team matchups, and game trends at Bet Online. Updated odds from everything from live games to conference championships right through to the Final Four and Championship game. Bet Online is your college basketball headquarters this season. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus. BetOnline.ag, where the game starts. And joining us on the Carne Asada is not only a former major leaguer, but a former Dodger. Uh, some of you guys may uh, recognize him. Uh, Joe Ferguson. Joe, bienvenido. ¿Cómo estás? How are you doing? I'm doing great. So, Joe, I, I have to say that the reason why... I the way I heard your name first is I saw that video. When everybody says Dodgers versus A's, everybody thinks 1988. But there's another Dodgers versus A's, and there's this video that I see all the time, and that's what first introduced me to you. Babyface, can we play the clip, please? One and one. High fly ball to shallow, well, medium center, and he should come home and score. Wynn makes one throw, and Ferguson took it with the better arm to throw. They got him. Oh, what a play. The one arm in the outfield was able to shoot down the runner. Watch Ferguson now get in front of him. This is a great throw, all the way on the fly, and what a block of home plate by Yeager. Look at that left foot planted. I asked Jim when if he had to make a hard throw, what would happen? Said my arm would draw up for the next three days. I could make one throw, and that's all. What a magnificent throw by Joe Ferguson to double up the runner. Here's the... So, Joe, do you ever get tired of seeing that clip or talking about that throw? No, well, actually, uh, it's it's the, the amazing thing about it. Probably, I would say that probably forty thousand people have have told me that they watched that play from the outfield. <laughs> so, I know the stands out there didn't hold forty thousand people, but I think <laughs> so. No, I don't ever get tired of it. You know the. the I think the the strange thing about it is that I was a catcher and I'm here I am playing the outfield. So I think that's what was was surprised a lot of people. I, I want to talk to you about that, but before I digress off of this, I have a couple of questions on this play. Uh one, did Wynn just uh give you a hard time for cutting cut, cutting in front of him to make the throw afterwards? No, actually he knew I was coming number one and number two. We had talked about this before the game even started. So, yeah, he knew he knew that if I if I had a chance to take something, I would take it because his arm was hurt. He couldn't throw. So uh, I was just fortunate enough. The ball was hit high enough. I could get to center field. So that's, so, how, that's how it happened. 
because you're a former catcher, I think you, you, this is a good, you're a good person that I could ask this question to. And that is in that video, we can clearly see that Jaeger's blocking the plate. And that's not something that they can do now in Major League Baseball. No, not anymore. Uh, do you do do you think that was a drawback? Was being able to block the plate that was an important part of the game, was it not? Not only that, I mean, you could block every base there was. His making difference was home plate, second, you know, third base didn't make any difference. So, but we all know why they did that. It's to protect the contracts today because people are making a lot of money. So. They just didn't want those kind of collisions or injuries to happen. So that's why the rule was instituted. So you mentioned that, you know, you used to be a catcher and then you're playing in the outfield. And now it's become kind of common for major leaguers to play multiple positions. I know in Little League, that's how it was. You played multiple positions, but then Correct. somehow between like high school and going to college or going to the minor league minor leagues you had one position and that's what you were going to pay that's what you were going to play uh first of all can you talk to us about that move i know they had jaeger coming up but how was it an easy transition for you to go from catcher to uh, to the outfield well i'd always been an outfielder before uh i started as an outfielder uh, and was converted to a catcher so the transition for me was easy. I mean, I'd always done it. Um, so uh, I played in the, in, in the outfield quite often, more, more than people think, because uh, whenever there was a left-hand pitcher, uh, Walter Alston or Tommy would put me in the outfield uh, and, and Steve would catch because they'd get more right-handed bats in the lineup. And, of course, when I was earlier on in my career, you know, in the 70s there, Willie Crawford was the right fielder, and Willie Crawford was left-hand hitter. So I would go play right field, and and Steve would catch. So you you mentioned uh, a, a favorite character of ours, and that's Tommy Lasorda. Uh, is was Tommy back then? Was he not considered a character? Is he more of a character now because there's just no nobody like that in the game of baseball now? Well, there were there were a lot of managers uh, similar to Tommy at that time in the big leagues, but uh, Tommy's a one of a kind. Nobody's nobody could do or do the things that that uh, Tommy did, and uh, and and it, basically it was his energy. If people would watch him, this guy was nonstop. He was twenty four seven, and he was the the ultimate the ultimate competitor as a manager. I mean, you had experience managing in, in, in the minor leagues. Like, you know, I, is it overblown to say that you, as a manager, you have to have that tactical skill? Or is it really more about motivating, getting these guys ready to play every day? I mean, it's 162 games. There's got to be a, a game or two where your player is just like, look, I'm tired. I'm not feeling it. Yeah. Well, some, you know, some managers are, are good at certain things. Um, some managers are good tact, you know, tacticians. Some managers are good uh, for their players. In other words, they're considered player managers. Uh, Tommy was both. Uh, Tommy could, uh, could, was a tremendous tactician, did things on the field that very few uh, managers ever did. Uh, and, but at the same time, he was a tremendous motivator. Anybody had to get, hear a speech that he would give knew how, how, how he could motivate people. Uh, he was a one of a kind. There's no, never going to be a Tommy Lasorda again. So, 
and he was my friend, and uh, I was just sad to ever see him go. So you had mentioned earlier that, you know, they changed the rules to, to blocking the plate to save the, the contracts, basically. Nowadays, it seems like the players are the ones that have all the power, and it's probably because of these contracts. They're making so much money. I mean, back in your heyday, was it very common for players and managers to go at it with each other? Because I can't imagine that happening now. Because if you did, I think the manager would get fired if a manager started reaming out a player in the dugout. Yeah, that was it was different back then. Their managers uh, were were basically the, the the team leader on a ball club, and if you needed a if you needed a talking to or you needed to uh, to be told what to do on the field in those certain turn in those certain terms, uh, they let you have it. You can't do that today, obviously, but I think there's a way to do it. There's a way to go about that. You can do that. Uh, but but you're not going to see much of that today. Um, and like you said, because of these contracts, I mean, when someone's making three or $400 million a year, who's going to be the person to go? That's a guaranteed contract. So the first person who's going to go is going to be the manager or coach. So you're, you're never going to see that. Um, I, how, how much baseball do you watch now? Are you still as involved as you were back then? I watch a little bit, but not too much. It's hard for me to watch like nine innings. <laughs> In other words, I'll watch a couple innings, and then I, and then usually I just turn it off because, I mean, in my in my career, I mean, I between playing and, and managing, it was a forty two year career, and you know I, I managed twelve hundred games in the minor leagues, and then I I played you know over a thousand or so. So you know, uh, I was a player, not a not someone that was going to be a fan. Uh, in other words, my deal was to get out and play baseball. That's all I ever wanted to do. And so it was, that's why I think it was easier for me when I got to the end of my career to walk away because I could not not play. I could not be on the field. I couldn't sit there on a bench. No matter what the salary was going to be paid to me, I had to be playing. So I walked away from the game. But I was 37 years old, so I wasn't a youngster. You know, I, you, from what you've seen, has the, you know, I hear a lot of people who used to play the game who say, I can't watch the game now for different reasons than what you've just said. They just don't like the product on the field. For you, especially with these new rule changes that we have, has the game of baseball, from what you've seen, has it changed that much? It's changed a lot. Um, there's some rule changes that, that have been okay that, I, you know, that could be accepted. There's been some that are not very good at all that don't, uh, that in other words, this game, when this game was, was, you know, originated by Abner Doubleday, it was perfect. There was nothing you couldn't, you didn't have to do anything to this game. Uh, all the things that are being done to the game today, all the changes are because of contracts. And so some rules are good. And, and but some rules uh, were were not needed, and one of the worst rules is when they you know the game's tied and they put a guy at second base to start the inning. That's one of the worst I've ever seen, and so those those type of things change the game completely. It and and it to me it's 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 hurt the game. 
Is there one rule, though, that you actually applauded them and said, you know what, they got that one right? Well, I think the game, because it's getting, because they've, they've uh, made that pitcher pitch within a certain amount of time, they've got the hitter into the box. I think that's a good rule uh, because the games, those type of games, the quicker those games go uh, based on, on, on the pitcher because it makes the defense better and it makes everybody alert. I think that was a, that's probably a good rule. So th- th- there are some good rules and some that you can tolerate. Uh, and there's and of course the the rule that they had with this uh, with the infield, you know, uh, playing on one side of the field uh, and people out in the outfield playing. That was horrible. That was a horrible rule. So at least that has been changed. And so that I think you're going to see a better brand of baseball. I have a couple of questions for you on these rule changes. So the the one that you just mentioned right now, the shift, wasn't it also on the the offensive team to try to beat that shift? I mean, it seems nowadays that these hitters can't go opposite field. Like if there is no third baseman, why don't you try hitting the ball down the third base side? Or is that easier said than done? No, it's not. We could do that. And there were hardly anybody when I played that couldn't do that. So I, it's, I think it's just that they just don't want to do it, that they just don't feel that, 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 that it's important for them to try to do that, which to me is kind of selfish. In other words, when there's a game on the, on, you know, that you can win, especially in the late innings, and you, don't, and you don't do that, you're hurting your ball club. You're being a very selfish player. And if you've noticed, it didn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often where they do that. Some players will do it. There will be a few that do but very seldom that you ever see it. Being a former catcher, I'm curious what you think of seeing these catchers get down on one knee to try to steal a strike. And I've talked to people and some, you know, current major leaguers, look, say, they tell me they hate doing this, but this is the instruction they are receiving from the team. Like, and they, they even say it in the minor leagues. I, I got to teach it in the minor leagues because that's what the team wants. You coached in the minor leagues. How many times did you get a directive from the organization, from the big club? Hey, I want you guys to, to teach them how to do this. Never. Never. That was so never this is done. new then? Oh, it's new. And it's not good. It's not. I mean, I, I don't understand why they do it. I, several times I've seen it in games where the ball gets by a catcher because of that one knee on the ground. And remember, once you put your knee on the ground, you might as well have a spike in that knee. In other words, you can't move. You can push in one direction only. That's it. So it's, it, it'll get catchers in trouble. It'll get teams in trouble. And invariably there's a guy at third base when this happens. And so if, if that run scores, I mean, uh, that's something a catcher should never allow to happen. Now, nobody's going to be perfect behind the plate. There's going to be a ball occasionally that's going to get by you. But it can't be because you're on your knee. The only time you should be on your knee when there's nobody on base, okay, and less than two strikes on a hitter. Because that way you don't have to, with two strikes, you may have to block a pitch and might get by it. Other than that's the only time you should be on your knee. So another rule change that has taken place that – I think we're starting to see the the effects are are the they're limiting the amount of throws that you can make to first base, and it seems that you have carte blanche to just steal any as many bases as you want. And yeah. 
I, I think part of it, maybe the pitchers aren't doing a good job of holding runners on, but I feel some of these catchers don't stand a chance to throw any of these guys out because of the jumps that these runners are getting. What do you think of that rule? It's not a good rule. That's that's one they should have shelved. They should, they should have never even had a, had a thought in their head to do something like that. I mean, you put a team you put a team in a situation where the where a catcher and and the manager are completely without any uh, say of what's going to happen on that field. And what's the difference whether they throw over or not? It doesn't it doesn't take that much time. You don't lose a lot of time by a couple of throws to go over there. How many times have you seen a pitcher? It's not like way back when Maury Wills was uh, stealing bases and Lou Brock, where these guys were stealing 100 bases, and you'd see throws five and six and seven times over there. They they never did that in the big leagues in the first place in the last few years. So I thought it was a bad rule, and uh, that's one that might get changed next year. <laughs> You know, Joe, I I, I want to get your thoughts on this because this recently came out. Uh, former Houston Astro Evan Gaddis starting to talk about the 2017 World Series again. It just seems like we're never going to get past what happened in the 2017 World Series. He recently said that they knew exactly what pitch was coming with Kershaw. And, of course, that Game 5, it, it altered everything. And, and what really upsets me most of all is... I don't think the Astros had to cheat, you know, and we'll never know. They might have been able to beat the Dodgers straight up in that World Series, but they went to that extreme. But we go back in the history of this game, and it sign stealing has always been a part of the game. Now, maybe not to the point that the Houston Astros took it, but back in when you were playing, how would your teams handle if you thought the other team was stealing signs? Well, if if we thought they were stealing signs, then we had a way to disguise that. Okay. Uh, what Houston was doing, I don't know exactly how they were doing it, uh, but they're not the first team to ever do something like that. There are many teams throughout history that did those type of things and literally cheated through the whole season. So it's not the first time it's ever happened. How they were doing it, I can't tell you because I wasn't part of the ball club. Uh, but you can stop that, okay, by disguising the actual signs that you give. And there's many, several different ways you can do that. So, like I said, we got to get past that. It's over with. It's not going to change anything. So all we can do is just go on from here, and hopefully it never happens again. Okay, we're going to wrap things up. We, we've been very uh, thankful for the time that you've given us, Joe, and we really appreciate that, 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 you know, that, that feeling that you give us because we, we've been hearing from a lot of people, you know, especially people who play the game and they don't play the game anymore. And it's like, well, why don't you want to watch the game? I mean, I, I, we have some great athletes. I mean, what Shohei Otani is doing with the Angels. Absolutely. Yes, I, I, Absolutely. I mean, wouldn't, why wouldn't you watch that? But then, like everything that you just said to me, you know, it, it makes sense in terms of there are certain changes, I think, that were made to the game that maybe shouldn't have been made. I, I mean, do you remember how long a game was when you were playing? Did it reach to the levels of three hours or, or more? There were times when it would, we'd play three hours. There were times when we, we'd play games, especially if Tommy John was pitching, you could play a, you could play a game in an hour and 45 minutes. 
This guy was just a, you know an instant ground ball every time he threw a pitch. So, but for, yeah, there would be three hour games. There would be long. There would be games where you're in extra innings. You'd, play, you'd be out there until two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I mean, it, that's part of baseball. That's the unique thing about baseball. And I, I think what turn, turns off people, uh, fans or, or people that have played the game, it's the strikeouts, the number of strikeouts that you see in the big leagues today, which tells me that nobody's trying to make contact. All they're trying to do is hit home runs. Otherwise, they wouldn't be striking out the way they do. So to me, that, that's, that really affects, okay, what people, because it's boring to see people just strike out. The most exciting thing in a, in a ball game is to see people running around the bases. Movement yeah. on the bases is always exciting. People stealing, hitting runs. Okay, someone hitting a double, guys scoring and stuff. That's what gets the crowd going. Not a strikeout and walking back to the dugout. I, 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 I think you're right on on that observation. I, the the strikeouts are, are a little much. Um, so we're going to end the show the way we always end the show. This is your first time on the show. So this is a podcast that is about the Dodgers. We're about Los Angeles. Uh, but we're also about other parts of the culture. But I have I have to ask you a couple of questions before I get to our main question. Uh, my first question was, you were you were on the coaching staff of that 1988 World Series yes. team, correct? Yes. You, you were the first base coach, right? I coached first and third once in a while, but most of the time I was in the dugout. Okay, you were in the dugout. Yeah, I was in the dugout. So what were your recollections of that famous game one of the World Series? I mean, we've heard, you know, Mitch Poole tell us the stories about how Tommy, you know, told Gibson to get ready and that he was down underneath. And like you had mentioned, 40,000 people saw you throw that ball. I feel like there's 3 million people that have told me that they were at that game one of that 1988 World exactly. Series. Well, right? Everybody that, was there. Actually, actually, uh, Gibson was in the training room. He wasn't even fully dressed, and he was just sitting in the training room watching the game. And uh, Tommy told Billy Russell, he said, uh, go up and get the big guy he's going to hit. And so Billy Russell went up to the training room. He says, get your uniform on, you're going to hit. And so he came, he, came down the, he came down the tunnel, and Tommy want, didn't want anyone to see him. He wanted to make sure, okay, that the right fielder, for the Dodgers was going to get walked Davis before he came out. That way he was going to pinch hit for Anderson. So did any of you actually think there was any chance that he could get a ball out of the ballpark? Was the plan, if he could just get a single, we could get Davis to score? Well, that's what, that's probably the best hope. But, you know, Gibby was, Gibby's a strong guy. He's, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous athlete. Uh, but in fact, he was only hitting on one leg. He, I mean, that injury put him to play. It's the only at bat he got the whole series. He never played. So, but he was a very strong guy and he got a pitch, uh, that was pretty much in his wheelhouse. And, and, uh, and he, he, uh, he squared it up and hit it to right field and it just didn't clear the fence. It was out pretty good too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I find very fascinating about you is, is this true? You played against Kareem in college? Yes. Yep. 
All right, so everybody here, you know, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. I feel, and, and and I guess I'm not old enough, but I remember Kareem towards the end of his career. But all these stories of what Kareem has accomplished, what was it like to face that guy in, in college before? I mean, I've heard the stories about how great he was in college, but then you he went on to accomplish even greater things in his exactly, career. Exactly, exactly. Well, he was Al Cinder then, so, you know. Uh, but, you know, they had a, UCLA had a tremendous team. It wasn't just him. They had great players on that team. Uh, and we met them in the, in the regionals. That's where we played them. And we gave them, all, we gave them everything uh, that they could take because it was, it was a pretty close game. And if we had not lost, I can tell you, if we had not lost our center, okay, to a sprained ankle in the second half, we may have beat him. Oh, really? We may have beat him because it was only, we only lost that about six or seven points. And, and, that, and our center was a big, strong kid, played in, played in the NBA, and he, he, was, he was kind of pushing uh, Kareem around pretty good because he was a very slight, you know, 7-2 guy at that point. So he was take he pretty much took charge. He came out within a minute the second half, sprained an ankle, and he was out for the rest of the game. So do you do you think Kareem doesn't get his due? I mean, LeBron James just passed him this year for all time scoring leader. I, I I mean, do we take Kareem for granted because he wasn't in an era where we could see every game like we do now? Well, maybe maybe that has something to do with it, but I mean I wouldn't I, I would have never taken him for granted, or Jordan, or any of those players. I mean, they were tremendous players, um, but they were. But those things, those players played on teams. In other words, it just wasn't one person. It was a team. Okay, the Laker teams. Uh, you know, they there were a lot of people that contributed uh, to wins. Today, it's sometimes you see in basketball, in the NBA, it's one or two guys on the team, and. That's that's the people that are doing all the scoring, and sometimes some of these guys. Because I mean, I played I played basketball for a long time, high school and college and everything else. And some of these guys, if you pass the ball to them, it'll be the last time you ever see the ball down the court. <laughs> okay, because some of these guys, you got to have five basketballs out there if you're gonna, you know, <laughs> to be able to get a shot off. So it's it's a different NBA now. All right, last one, Joe, before we let you go. Uh, we are all about tacos on this show. We love tacos. So we want to know what is your favorite taco and where do you go to get that taco? The taco? Well, the tough place, you know, I'm in South Carolina now. So there's oh, okay. You know, <laughs> but we do have, we do, we do have a couple of places that are pretty good. Uh, one of them is called Cerros, C E R O S. And uh, they they got pretty good Mexican food there, and so we we uh, I send my daughter down there once in a while uh, to bring food back here. So, but uh, like I say, you know, it's not Los Angeles it's, uh, or Phoenix. It's not like it's the population here is not the same. So. Um, so, what kind of taco do you order? Do you order the classic, or is there a specific kind of protein meat that you like with no, your taco? I, I actually, I, I, I prefer chicken tacos to be okay. perfectly honest. Yeah. Because I mean, you were born in San Francisco, right? I was born in San Francisco. Yep. And, uh, uh, I'm Italian. So, oh, okay. you know, that's, uh, that's my heritage. So, you know, I was, 
I'm a big spaghetti pasta guy, you know, so my, my whole life as a kid, so that's, that's what we, we had. So it, it's a, it was different. I was, I was raised in an Italian neighborhood. So uh, I know what it's like, you know, the, the, the Mexican, um, you know, hierarchy and everything is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and their families and stuff, they stay very close together. A lot of family, very family oriented. It's the same thing with the Italians. So, what is your go-to Italian dish? Then, are you are you a spaghetti over a lasagna person? Or? No, I'm not. I, I'm not a lasagna guy. Uh, I, I'm more of a, just a straight pasta guy. Uh-huh. I don't use I don't use a lot of sauce. I, I like I, I do a lot of ayo uh, uh, yoyo uh, stuff with garlic and things. That's the type of pasta that I like to eat, uh, and so. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I was not big on sauces for some reason. So I've always stayed with the garlic and oil primarily as, as pasta. So, uh, but I like sausages, meatballs, you know, I, all the other stuff I love. So, how is that? How's the Italian food in South Carolina? Not bad. We got some pretty good Italian restaurants here, which is surprising <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> uh, are you a pizza guy, Joe? I like pizza, but it's got to be cold pizza. <laughs> oh, really? I, I don't like hot pizza. I don't like it. And But when it's cold, I, especially if it's a thin crust, I love it. Yeah. There you have it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Joe. We really appreciate your insight into today's game and letting us relive uh, baseball that a lot of us don't know. And it, it would have been really interesting because you're right. When you say Tommy John, I mean, I can just imagine the length of games that Sandy Koufax pitched. I mean, those were one nothing, two to one ball games. Yeah, pretty quick. Yep, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so, but thank you. There you have it, ladies. Joe, are you on any social media where our listeners, our viewers, can follow you? I'm no, I'm not on a social media. Uh, I've kind of stayed off, away from that. You know, I, you know, when I was done with baseball, in other words, I raised a family. Uh, I was raising my kids and everything else because we had we had adopted uh, my my daughter's kids and they were young little babies. So for the longest for like 20 years, you know, I was I was pretty well hidden away. That's why I'm (laughs) kind of looking forward to getting back to Los Angeles again uh, to to see if I could uh, get involved with some things back there once in a while with the fans and stuff. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. I got to do that last year. I was at the uh, the All Star Game and did some uh, some promotions and things back there at that time. So I'm looking forward to doing it again. Are you? Uh, are, do you have anything coming up soon that we can uh, plug for you? N- not not that I know of right now. No. Okay. Yeah, we're looking we're looking towards possibly the All Star Game in Seattle. Oh, okay. So we'll see whether that whether that actually comes about. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm just. I'm just looking forward to get back there and doing some stuff with the Dodgers. So hopefully that can be that can happen. Well, you let us know anything that you're doing. We will plug it for you, Joe. But once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, former Dodger Joe Ferguson. Thank you. And once again, a big thank you to Joe Ferguson, uh, the former Dodger, for joining us on the show and and giving us some insight into these rule changes, his career. Um, of course, the famous mythical 1988 World Series moment. Um, Babyface, I, I don't know. 
I, I know some people are going to sit there and take that as, of course, all the old timers are going to say that baseball was better when they played. But he's he actually liked a, f- a, a few of the rules changes. Um, what I think is really interesting, again, is unanimously, it seems like everyone, as, a, as much as they didn't like the pitch clock, they like the effects of the pitch clock. So the fact that it is, you know, the games are at least maybe two and a half hours uh, on the, you get the, sometimes you get some extremes where some games are closer to two hours. It's very rare that we get games now that are closer to three hours. So um, what were your thoughts on, on, on what Joe Ferguson had to say about these rule changes? Yeah, I think, you know, what he what he said makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, like he said, you know, he likes there's some rules, some stuff, but there's stuff that he doesn't like, you know, like I think the the biggest one, right, is, is the pitching clock, right? A lot of people at first like, no, you know, stupid. We don't need, you know, I, I don't I still don't believe we need a pitch clock. Right. But I do agree that, you know, what it, it has helped kind of just kind of keeping the game, the game moving. Right. You know, the pitcher gets in there. He's ready to throw the batter's in. He's ready to go. Right. Like I said, my my concern is going to be like on those situations where the game is on the line, right? The very intense situations of the game, like where the games really mean a lot, you know, in the, getting close to postseason, in the postseason, how that is going to be affected, right? Because you know, just us as natural humans, right? We're gonna we're stressed, right? We're in that moment, right? Like, and you you got it, okay? You got 15 seconds. You got You got to be ready to go, right? It, it, I think it's going to be a lot different different situation when it comes to that. But for right now, like I said, everything's been been good. You know, he did touch on one of the things that I've been thinking about is the 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 throwing back to the base, right? You yeah. get two you get two chances, and and he was saying he's thinking that that's going to be gone next year because like we're seeing teams that are kind of like, I mean, I'm not going to say exploiting it because it's it's a rule, right? Like, but they're they're using that right to their advantage, right? And how that's going to go going forward, you know, like because you know, like I said, if you throw over once, now you know, like. Okay, I don't know if I can really throw over twice, second second time over, because if I do, that's it. And then now that runner is going to take, you know, halfway to the second base lead, right? So that may need to be looked at a little bit, you know, going forward, how how they might tweak that out. You know, we'll, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I guess the, the the running numbers are up a bit, but you know, I don't think we're going to get to like Ricky Henderson, you know, Lou Brock days, right? But you know, we'll see how that you know goes throughout the season. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because what if we do? What if someone gets close to to stealing a hundred bases, right? What what if that happens? And I mean, let let's get let's even since we're in this make believe uh, scenario here. What if someone broke Ricky Henderson's single season stolen base record? And there's going to be an asterisk on it, right? People are going to sit there and go, oh, well, they, they, he didn't really break it because he had all these rules that made it easier to steal bases, you know, back when Ricky did it. So it is interesting. I keep forgetting, and I'm, I'm grateful that he brought it up, that, you know, all these rule changes, they can be revisited. You, you know, we've tried it out. We saw what it was like. Like, I would not be surprised if maybe they said, okay, we're going to do this pitch clock, but when it comes to the ninth inning, it's done. Or when it comes to the last inning, extra innings, we're not going to enforce it because 
of the scenario that you talked about. We don't want. But then again, people may argue and go, you can't do that. You can't have a rule for part of the game. And then at the end of the game, that rule is not because there may have been plays that happened earlier in the game that could have impacted the game. So I, I really don't know how they're probably not going to deal with it until they absolutely have to deal with it when something like that happens where people are going to like lose their mind. Uh, one of the other rules that he was not a fan of was the ghost runner. And I see where he's coming from in terms of the ghost runner, right? Because I remember when I was a kid, there were 22 inning games, right? And it was like, Oh my God, it's two o'clock in the morning and this game is still going and it was like an act of attrition. You, you had position players pitching because, you know, you had run out of, of relievers. And that was an impact because you felt it in the next few games, right? Because you had pay, played for so long. And that's kind of part of the game. And on a certain extent, I do see how it's like, Look, we, we want to avoid that. We don't want – we're already playing too many games. It's 162 games. You know, let's just get it over with sudden death. Other sports have sudden death, but they, they've tweaked on it. I mean, do you think eventually – is the genie out of the bag on this, or will Major League Baseball go back and look at that ghost runner rule? I mean that was there was talk that that was going to be gone this season. Remember, they, they said like it was it was going to be gone for this. But then at, towards the beginning of the year, they said like you know what we're going to bring that back. They kind of like that rule. I mean they don't use it in the postseason. But another thing I was thinking of like, hey, I don't think we've seen it yet if, on extra inning games, right? Like right, I don't know how many extra innings games it's been this season, but like now okay, starting that runner off at second and right with now the the rule the throwover rule too like. Are guys going to be taking those bigger leads at second, right, and and, and get to third? Because, like, that's one of the things – when I think of baseball, like, you know, and I think, like, old school baseball, getting that runner – to me, when I see that run I've, – I've always had this this concern, like, you know, why can't they get that runner over to third, right, uh, you know, and then sacrifice, fly, whatever. You score that run. Like, to me, it's like there's no reason that a guy should stay at second when they're giving them that, that – that ghost runner, right? You know, you bunt them over or whatever, do, do the small things to get to get that run in, right? And and many times we see like teams can't get them in, right? Yeah. So now with this with this new rule, like I mean, I'm sure teams are going to take advantage of that, right? Like the Diamondbacks, like you're going to have that guy like halfway to third on the first pitch, right? Like so, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as well, like. Do, will teams take, you know, use that for their advantage, you know, in an extra inning role, in an extra inning game? Well, I, I, I also was intrigued by the fact that he felt that when baseball was invented, it was already a perfect sport. You know, th those are his words. He felt that baseball was perfect and we didn't need to do all of this stuff. So I, I wonder, obviously, I think we're going to need more time and be able to look back to see how many of these rule changes really impacted the sport. The fact that now we have the DH in both leagues, I did kind of, I do miss seeing the pitcher hit. I know there's a lot of people who are like, I don't need to see the pitcher hit, but there was strategy there involved there, right? Because it's like, okay, do I take my pitcher out now and use a pinch hitter? And now my bench is shorter, you know? So, I mean, that kind of stuff, I, I felt 
it was always intriguing because it was just exclusive, right, to the National League. You didn't have to do this stuff, worry about this stuff in the American League. So whenever you had an American League team that had to play by the National League rules, it was always interesting to me. So I, I am curious as the, as the years progress and we see how these rule changes have impacted the sport. And it was always interesting to see the, the pitchers that actually would like be like, hey, you know what, I'm going to hit. Yeah. I'm not just going to be an easy out, and I'm going to work on that craft, right? Like guys like yeah. Kershaw or Granky or Bumgarner, right? That they'd love to hit, right? Yeah. And they would they would work on that craft, right? Like long before Shohei, right? You know, so it was interesting to see those guys that that want you know back you know, going back even further. Hershey was a pretty good hitter. Fernando was a pretty good hitter, yeah. right? So you know, so I think that you know I like that aspect as well, right? But obviously, you know, we like the DH in there as well, like, you know, more, there's more production or whatever and whatnot, but it, it was interesting to have the, the pitcher hitting. I do think he's absolutely spot on on the strikeout thing, though. I, I mean, and, and that, we've talked about it in other episodes. I am very alarmed by the number of times that the Dodgers strike out in games. And this has been going on f for a while. I mean, We've talked about it on a, on a previous episode. You know, Chris Taylor striking out almost half the time. This stuff, it, it's not fun, you know, and I get it. You know, offense sells. You want more offense, and this is like in all sports, right? I think it's the reason why in this country football is not as popular because of the fact that there isn't enough offense, right? The fact that, oh, I'm going to go watch them go 0-0, zero, zero, how is that e exciting, right? Well, I argue the opposite. Because offense is so limited limited in football, anytime there's an opportunity to score, it's exciting. But when he says, you know, these guys strike out too much, and what is actually fun is when you see guys running on the bases. So the fact that now the stolen base has come back into the sport, I think it does make it exciting, right? Because it, you, if you have runners on base for your team, you're getting excited, right? Because here comes the opportunity for us to score. When the other team has runners, you get tense, you get stressed, right? Because it's like they're going to score. That's what makes the sport exciting. Yeah, and I think the, the strikeout, it's kind of like we've kind of become desensitized to it, right? Like, oh, he struck out, whatever, right? Like, back in the day, like, the guy struck out, like, they were, like, pissed, right? Like, they, they don't want to go out there yeah. and strike out. Now now it's like, you know, guy strikes out once, twice, right, three times. I mean, they even – they made the, the, the golden sombrero, right? That was a really yeah. rare occurrence, right? A guy struck out yeah. four times in the game, right? Now we see it more common. Like, there's a golden sombrero, like, like almost every night, right? And then what do we say, like – Five is a platinum sombrero, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I had never seen a platinum sombrero. <laughs> I, I, I never, I couldn't remember the last time I saw a platinum sombrero until Muncie did it on opening day. Yeah, and, that, and that's, like I said, it's it's kind of just like, oh, he struck out, okay, no big deal, right? It's like, you know, guys now have, you know, 200 strikeouts a season or more, right? It's, it's, it, it's not something that. I guess, you know, you know, the average, right? Like the batting average, right? Like guys wanted to hit, you know, 300, 280, 290, right? Like now we're, I mean, we've said it's like, if, hey, this guy hits me 230, 240, I'll take it, right? Because yeah. that's kind of like where the game has, has gone, right? Like, you know, when you're looking at somebody like, like Chris Taylor, right? Like, hey, if he can hit 220, 230 or Cody Bellinger, if he could hit like 240 and, and hit you, you know, 25 home runs, you'll take it, right? Like that's kind of like where, where we've gotten to. 
Yeah, uh, the standard, I think, has been lowered, which is another thing that I found interesting about him is that he went out of baseball. You know, I'm done with baseball. And it, and it was, you know, he was a guy who played, fa you know, basketball when he was younger, and he had a long career in baseball. And it is very interesting to me to always hear former major leaguers who just are like, they're no longer interested in watching baseball or they can't watch baseball anymore. But in the end, he was just like, well, I, I, I want to get back to doing stuff with the Dodgers. I want to, you know, get back involved with the organization. So it, to me, it was just one of those things where it's just like it's the line from The Godfather Part 3, right? Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. You could say you're done with it, but are you really done with it? You're always – if you grew up in the game, if the game is part of you, I think there's always going to be that – you know, I miss it and I want to be it, be involved in it. But I think you also want it to succeed. And I that's one thing I actually do admire about the Dodgers in that is that they do bring these old players back. And it is more of like a fraternity. And it kind of helps you, right? As you get older, you're like, oh, I remember that guy. And it, it helps to keep you young, I feel, in, in your opinion, when you see – older players and you, you see them around the stadium. I mean, I wish there would be more in particular. I would love to see the Dodgers try to bring back Pedro Guerrero more into the fold. And maybe Pedro Guerrero doesn't want to, right? You know, he's like, I don't live in LA, but friend of the carne asada, Eric Gagne, he seems to be making more trips to the Dodgers. I've been seeing the Mike Piazza Dodger jersey a lot more the throwback jersey. So I'm wondering if hopefully eventually Piazza will come back to the Dodgers because yes, he went into the Hall of Fame as a New York Met and a lot of people recognize him as a New York Met, but Mike Piazza to me is always going to be a Dodger. Yeah, and I, I think that that I'm going to say is more on Piazza, right? Trying to, I don't know why he still has those, that those, if he still has those ill will feelings towards the Dodgers, because it's totally a different organization, like how it's run, you know, like I'm sure if he wants to come back and, and be a part of the organization anyway, they'd welcome him back. And I don't know, maybe they've even reached out and it's just maybe something he doesn't want to do yet. I mean, but it'd be great, you know, to see Piazza come back, you know, um, I mean, I've always thought. I mean, I mean, technically they could retire his number, right? I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame, right? He's not as a Dodger, right? But I mean, he did so much as a Dodger in his time. You know, he could definitely, they could definitely retire that number and 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 you know welcome him back into the fold. Yeah, I, I, so it's it's nice to hear Joe Ferguson say that. Uh, so before I end the show, I I do again. It was brought to my attention on the last episode, so I want to bring it up again. I I think I kind of took for granted the number of our listeners, our viewers, that are wrestling fans. I really thought that whenever we talked wrestling on this show, it was just us humoring ourselves because we're wrestling fans. But I was really kind of taken by surprise the fact that people actually enjoy hearing us talk about wrestling. So I'm only saying this because I said I wanted to make a concerted effort to at least do one wrestling thing uh, on the show before we leave. So I want to bring this up, but I don't know if you're aware of this, Babyface, but did you know that Butch of the Bushwhackers just recently passed away? Yeah, like it was like last week, right? He passed yeah. away. 
Butch uh, of the Bushwhackers, and not that I was a big Bushwhackers fan, right? But I, I remember them. I, I remember them. To me, it was like the. the it's funny, if you look at the history of the Bushwhackers, I guess before when they were in the NWA and they were wrestling in, like, territories, they were known as the Sheep Herders. Sheep herders. And, and they, they were much more violent. Like, yeah, they were one of the most violent tag teams. Like, I, I remember as a kid, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd always be going, getting the wrestling magazines, right? And I would see these guys as Sheep Herders, right? And they'd be, like, wrestling in barbed wire matches, the pictures they show, these guys are all bloody. They got barbed wire, like, all over their face. They got all scarred. And then a couple years later, I, like, I see these promos coming on, on WWF. The, the Bushwhackers are coming, and, like, they're doing all <laughs> – like, what the heck happened to the Sheepers? Like, how did they become the Bushwhackers, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that, I thought that was always interesting, like, how they changed. And they went and they went in just the complete opposite direction. They were hmm. comedic. I was not aware. Do you know that they actually came close to winning the tag team titles? Mm, they never won them, right? They, no, they, they, they never they, won the no. tag team title. To me, the Bushwhackers, especially when they were in the WF, were just jobbers. They were just the tag team that were going to lose, that were going to help build up the next tag team that was going to you know, make a run for the title. But I guess behind the scenes, they were going to beat the Brain Busters when the Brain Busters had the title. Uh, for those of you who don't know who the Brain Busters were, that was when Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard came from the NWA slash WCW over to the WWF. And they were going to drop, the Brain Busters were going to drop the title to the Bushwhackers, but Butch had gotten an injury. And because of that injury, they never dropped the title. So... They were, the Bushwhackers were like, unfortunately, like to me, they were the jobbers. They've always been the jobbers. And it's always sad for me because there's so many wrestlers that I grew up watching that have passed away. And, you know, it's on our last episode, uh, a contributor to the Bleed Lows podcast now, Elisa Hernandez, talked about her experience of going to WrestleMania and she felt like she was nine again. I think that's part of the reason why I enjoy talking about wrestling is whenever I talk about wrestling, I, it helps to keep me young because it takes me back to those days when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, th th that's one of the times that, that I enjoy it, but I, I've been trying to get into the new, like WWE. I like, I was watching WrestleMania kind of seeing, seeing, you know, what's going on now. Like one of, one of my things, like, and I think I tweeted this to you guys, or texted to you guys it's like I don't remember being so many so many close falls right like like yeah he, he, they'd hit each other with with their their Finisher. signature their finish and then like one two oh we got up like so many times like like towards the end you know maybe for 10 minutes like they'd hit all kinds of finishers their finisher their their opponent's finisher and like they they get up like so many times, and you know, back in the day, like right once he once he saw the finisher, right, that's it, it was over, right? Once, it was over. Once, once Hogan dropped that leg on you, like I tell you, it was over, right? Now yeah. I think it, it's really like, I don't know, just for the for the dramatic, I guess, feel, right? It just like, nope, nope, we didn't get him, nope, nope, we didn't get him, and like that to me is kind of like eh, it's a little little weird, but you know, whatever. I I think that happened because they pulled back the curtain. They they stopped pretending that it wasn't fake and they kind of showed everything. So I, I, I think they kind of 
some of the luster, some of the magic was lost because of that. But mm -hmm. like Elisa said, you know, being there at, at WrestleMania live event, it was crazy. The energy. And I think everyone just buys into it and everyone is, is just happy. It is unfortunate that we had WrestleMania in our backyard and we didn't get to, a, a chance to go. I think it would have been nice uh, to go. But I, I've heard nightmare stories about SoFi. I, especially the the acoustics, and it was something I didn't get a chance to talk to Elisa about in our last episode. But I've heard many things from people who go see concerts at SoFi, who say that the sound system is is horrible, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that wouldn't be the same at, at a wrestling event. But our, our condolences to the Bushwhacker family as as poor Butch uh, has passed away, and another reminder of my youth, another part of my youth is is gone now even though i was never a bushwhackers fan the one thing i remember the most about the bushwhackers and i don't know if you remember this was actually from luke uh the other bushwhacker when i think he has the quickest royal rumble elimination like he literally got into the ring and then earthquake grabbed him from the back of the head walked him across the ring and threw him over the top on the other side of the ring and he kept doing the the bushwhacker strut uh, as he was eliminated by that that's my fondest memory of the bushwhackers yeah um yeah i'm trying to think like what, what was one of their highest moments i mean I, all i remember like you said is just you know them coming to the ring and you know they'd have their hats with a bite you know from a crocodile bite or something yeah. right like like torn off like whatever but i never got over that that whole like these guys were the sheep herders like these guys <laughs> were like like this, i mean they were like ecw hardcore before ecw hardcore ever existed right like and then they turn into the bushwhackers, bushwhackers. But, but yeah, it, it, I mean, at least Bush. I think he. he how old was he about? Like, in, was he in his seventies or a little older I, than that? I, I, late sixties, I think, maybe. Okay. So you know, he, he's still or pretty no, young. You might be right. Maybe he was in his seventies. You know, he 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 was getting up there. But you know, it, it, you know, it is sad that we have lost a lot of those guys that they were young, right? Like yeah. young, you know, young guys that 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 we grew up on. But you know. Uh, you know, another another fallen uh, WWF legend. Actually, Butch was 78 years old. Okay. So, you know, he, he had a long life. For a wrestler to, to make it that long, uh, have you been watching any of the uh, A&E? Um, I, I think they did one recently on Dusty Rhodes, didn't they? I haven't seen that one. I saw the... Uh, was it the... I think was it was the China one? Was it the China one? Um, I, I didn't see that one, but I know I think they're doing one on the Iron Sheik, either this weekend or this past weekend. They did, they did one on the Iron Sheik. Yeah, those are pretty good. They've been pretty good ones I've seen. So uh, may, maybe I'll check them out and I'll give you guys a review on, on the Bleed Lows podcast. Since I know you guys loved wrestling talk and missed the wrestling talk, so my, my apologies to you guys. I, I, I didn't know that you felt so passionately about it. Yeah, um, we're going to have to like... Uh... I mean, too bad. Too bad they don't have the uh, the old wrestling back in, uh, like when they had the sports arena in L.A. I be, that would that, I think that would have been pretty fun to go check out. Well, yeah. Now now it's either Raw or SmackDown that you're going to yeah. see the old house shows, the old yeah. house shows that used to be in the dark, and you you never 
you never heard about those matches. But that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, again, for those of you who have just stumbled across us on YouTube, make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. Um, if you prefer to listen to the audio format uh, of this podcast, you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to it. You can catch up on all episodes. And, and then you'll be notified of when our next episode drops. So uh, for this episode of the Bleed Those Podcast, you want to see those who servidor Juan Ramirez de parte de mi colega Babyface. Nos vemos para la próxima. This episode of the Bleed Those Podcast has been brought to you by betonline.ag, where the game starts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.